This podcast contains discussion about adult topics. Use your judgment if there are little ears around. Welcome to Doing It. This is a podcast made by Family Planning Victoria. FPV has been running for over 50 years now. We run lots of education programs for communities and medical professionals across Victoria. We also run sexual health clinics in the city and Box Hill in Melbourne. My name is Anne and I'm part of the FPV schools and community team. We run classes for all your levels on bodies, growing up, sex, puberty, reproduction, relationships. This podcast is for parents and carers of school-aged children, so we can share what goes on in a relationships and sexuality education class and help support these sorts of conversations at home. Today, I'll be talking to Dr. Gemma Sharp. Gemma is a clinical psychologist and senior research fellow in the Monash Alfred Psychiatry Research Centre where she leads the Body Image Research Group. Gemma has a particular interest in female genital body image and cosmetic genital surgery. The goal of Gemma's current research is to help parents and carers start conversations with young people about their genitals to hopefully prevent the development of genital concerns later in life. Research has shown that concerns about genital appearance can lead to some really serious consequences like risky sexual behaviours, as well as avoiding necessary gynaecological health checks like pap smears. It's my experience in classrooms that many students have limited knowledge of typical female genitalia. In upper primary school, we ask that students label diagram as an introductory activity. It's really common that students know or can guess at much of the typical male reproductive anatomy, but most of the words for typical female reproductive anatomy are new. Many students cover up the diagrams, finding them really difficult to sit with or to look at. Vagina is the word they often know, and this will often be mislabeled as they don't realize that the outside part is called the vulva. I'm really interested in hearing about Gemma's research and suggestions she has for conversations parents and carers can have with their young people. A note before we start, in this conversation we'll be talking about what is typical for girls, women, females, or for boys, men, males, but it's important to note that bodies are not always typical and discussion won't be true for all people and all bodies, particularly non-binary, transgender, and intersex people. Gemma, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you so much for having me on, Anne. It's a real pleasure. Oh, great. First question, can you talk to me a little bit about your interest and experience in body image and in particular female genital body image? Thank you for asking that question, Anne. I've been really lucky to be in this field for more than seven years now. Wow, that time has flown. I suppose I first got interested in... um, in body image research, I actually came from a, a more, I suppose, uh, lab science background, but I was interested in how people um, who are undergoing cancer treatments, how, how their body image is impacted. I thought there was such a, a lovely crossover between medicine and psychology there. But then I, I got a bit more interested in the body image aspects than the, the cancer aspects. And so I went purely into body image after that. And I've always been quite interested in um, the ways in which people modify their bodies. And when I was starting my PhD back in 2013, I looked at the trends for cosmetic surgeries and found that there was a particular type of surgery 
that was just going through the roof in terms of popularity throughout the Western world, and that was labiaplasty, so a type of cosmetic genital surgery that reduces the size of the inner vaginal lip. And I was like, wow, why is this surgery so popular compared to, say, breast augmentation, nose job, uh, liposuction, those kinds of things? Uh, especially because it's a part of the body where women very rarely show other people. So I, I dedicated my entire PhD to that topic of why women do it and what they get out of it. And it really showed that those genital appearance concerns were very prevalent and um, were, uh, I suppose, um, prompting a lot of women to seek this type of surgery. And we still don't know the long-term effects of this surgery. So it was a real worry that it was becoming really popular without much of an evidence base. So I think, I think it's just been a real joy to be in this field for so long and, and very fortunate now to be considered a world expert in it, which is so, so lovely and cool. What I have done more recently in this field is that we saw that by the time women become adults, often these genital appearance concerns are quite ingrained. And so I've shifted more to an adolescent focus to see if we might be able to prevent these concerns from happening in the first place. And, and that sort of fits in with the more general body image work that we're like, okay, young people get a sense of uh, where their bodies are in the scheme of the world and in the scheme of their identity. And we want to help them form a healthy body image as soon as they start developing any sense of body image. Can you describe, we're talking a little bit about female genitals today. So can you describe what we mean by female genitals and what misunderstandings young people often have about them? Yeah, so female genitals, they're a very uh, secretive and taboo topic, aren't they? And it's, it's quite interesting to be asked that question in an audio format rather than a visual format. I'll do my very best to, to do this description. I suppose one of the common things we do is to avoid even using the correct terminology for women's genitalia. Um, we'll use a lot of euphemisms like flower, lady garden, foo-foo, vajayjay, you name it. Um, we'll, we'll use any uh, term to avoid using the, the right anatomical terms. In terms of anatomical terms that we, we use commonly is vagina. I think most um, parents would introduce vagina to their young girls at a fairly early age. I think the issue with the term vagina is that we often use it to describe the entire genital region whereas actually it's just the inside part of the genital area, that the whole outside part is called the vulva. And that has the vaginal lips, so the labia minora, the labia majora, the clitoris, etc. So I think by just calling everything the vagina, it sounds like it's just, it's just one big blur down there. Like there's no features. As girls get older and the external genitalia becomes more prominent, if we're just calling everything the vagina, then that comes as a big shock to them that their external genitalia will start to change. Once they start menstruating and things like that, and they're you know, inserting tampons or, or using um, other kinds of menstrual devices, then if they're um, not up to speed with their anatomy, then that can be very confusing. We often hear um, things about girls trying to insert tampons into their urethra, which is where urine comes out, and obviously not being able to insert a tampon there because it's it's not meant for that. So I think 
our, our lack of um, use of the correct terminology and our lack of understanding of all the different parts of the female genital anatomy, which is even, um, I hate to say it, potentially even more complicated than male anatomy, which we seem to be much more confident and knowledgeable about. Mm, that's definitely what I see in a classroom, certainly in upper primary school, that it's a big surprise that there's extra openings uh, in some behind someone's vulva. Absolutely. Yeah. There's, there's, um, I mean, I've spoken to adult women who were convinced that menstrual blood came out of the same place as urine did. And I'm like, no, guys, that's not right. So I think, yeah, the more we can upskill young people on the number of openings and what all those skin folds mean, the better. What do you think the societal taboos around typical f female genitals are? That's a very, very uh, big question there, Anne. I'll do my best to answer it. The taboos around female genitalia seem to be have been around for so long. I don't think this is a recent thing. And so I think in terms of the origins of them, it's really hard to really hard to speculate. If we think back historically, like there's lots of sort of statues, images of men with these very sort of large phalluses. Um, showing fertility, etc. But really, the the depictions of the women really aren't there. And I think it sort of speaks to that. Um, I suppose sexuality, reproduction, is very much told from the perspective of men, and um, that women are more, I suppose, passive receptacles. As much as I hate to say that, passive receptacles of in a sexual experience. It's really more about what the man what the man does, and the woman kind of lays back and then she, she bears the children. So I think um, female genitalia, female pleasure in the sexual act has been a very much neglected area. Um, and I think it just wasn't viewed as necessary for reproduction, but clearly the fact that we have a clitoris, um, we have all these nerve endings, sensory experiences in, this, um, in the sexual act shows that these, these organs, these parts of our anatomy have evolved for a reason. And it's just been neglected. And I think, yeah, female sexuality, females being in charge of their own sexuality has been considered such a taboo. And only now we seem to be, I suppose, emerging a bit from that. And I suppose with more, more women becoming voices in society as well, like I think it probably speaks to some patriarchy too, um, not just in this area, but in lots of areas. So I think the more, the more that women are the, are the ones telling the history, the better. It is interesting how young people and, and adults find male genitalia quite funny, but female genitals so private that they should never really be discussed. I, I agree, Anne. And I think even, you know, my research audiences, you know, these are, you know, top-notch professors, etc. If I do the male genitalia speech, it's always jokes, laughter. The female genitalia speech, silence. And um, I don't, I mean, I don't think it should be laughter necessarily, but I think we could, <laughs> I wonder if we could be a bit more measured on both sides. You know, people will often say to me, I, I felt quite in, um, initially quite embarrassed when you started talking about this topic, but generally by the end, they've come around to it just because they've listened to me speak about this topic for a while and just heard me normalize all of these experiences and terms. And then they've gone on to, for example, if they're mothers, they'll talk to their children about these terms, like using the vulva instead of the vagina. So 
So I think if people are experiencing a bit of discomfort when first hearing these terms, that's completely normal, but it's completely possible to get past that embarrassment or, or ickiness or whatever, whatever people are feeling. Yeah, absolutely. It takes practice. <laughs> it really does. I, I was actually thinking and like when um, uh, preparing for my first speech as a PhD student, having to say vagina and vulva in front of my entire department, so my seniors as well as my peers. And I think I just said vagina in front of the mirror for about a good hour when I was practicing the speech and that really helped. So mm. even someone who's elected to study this area in depth, I still had my own, my own sense of embarrassment to get over. So what can be gained by helping young people have a greater understanding of typical female genitals? There, there really is only gains in this area. I think um, like we know from our own research that uh, girls who, um, or, or anyone who, who's able to understand the different parts of their genitalia, they're more likely to be able to speak to health professionals when they feel like something's not quite right down there or speak with their parents, whoever, um, whoever they feel comfortable talking with. And they'll be able to speak with more knowledge in that they can say, ah, you know, it's my labia minora or it's, you know, uh, my labia majora or, or my vulva or whatever. So it gives them, I suppose, extra comfort and confidence to be able to have those. We also know that young people who have a good sense of genital body image and knowledge, they're less likely to engage in risky sexual activities, which we know can result in STIs, unwanted pregnancies, sexual assaults, those kinds of things. So having a good knowledge means that it modifies our behaviours as well in our sexual activities. And also it allows us to have a more enjoyable sex life in general um, when we do get to that stage. So I think it really is only, only benefits. And I suppose the topic that I have spent a lot of time in, um, it also means that all genders are less likely to undergo a genital surgery for cosmetic reasons, um, which we know don't have a strong evidence base and can result in some really serious side effects like loss of sensation, scarring, bleeding, painful sex, you name it. So these... Um, these are all things that can be avoided if people have a good genital body image. I should say also just, yeah, having more routine gynecological checks, uh, urological checks. So I think just being engaged with healthcare providers and avoiding surgery and having a greater sex life. What can you tell me about reports in increase in demand for female genital surgery? So labiaplasty and people wanting to change how their vulva essentially looks. Yeah, so I think the scary part about this is that the requests are coming from younger and younger people. The youngest I've ever read is about a nine-year-old seeking cosmetic genital surgery. I mean, how frightening is that? The nine-year-old hasn't even gone through puberty yet. Girls below 18 are requesting this surgery because they're concerned about how they look down there. It's the fastest growing type of cosmetic surgery in the world. Um, it's won that title for a couple of years now. So it's not, you know, it's not an obscure thing. It's actually becoming very mainstream, which is a real concern. We don't keep good stats about the numbers here in Australia, which is a bit of a pain because it's mostly done in the private sector and they don't have to report their stats. But in the States, um, I think in the last five years, we've seen the numbers grow 50%. 
um, which is a huge increase. And that, that's likely to be an underestimate anyway, because not everyone needs to report in the States either. So fastest growing in the world, um, it's growing exponentially, it would seem. So I'm not vehemently opposed to people having the surgery type. I want to make that clear. But I think it needs to be, um, they need to be informed and it needs to be for the right reasons, quote unquote. Because the last thing you want is to undergo genital surgery, experience side effects, and be really dissatisfied with the outcomes. And I think younger people tend to be more dissatisfied with um, cosmetic procedures because they, they don't necessarily have all the maturity to make that decision. Labiaplasty should not be performed in general on anyone who hasn't already had their genitals fully matured. Because sometimes the, I suppose, the imbalances in size um, the way it looks can even out if given time. And if someone undergoes surgery before that happens, then there's no chance of that happening. Mm-hmm. And I, I worry that we might be setting young people up for, um, you know, to have not very good um, sexual health and sexual lives if they're undergoing these procedures. And if someone asks for labia surgery, what are they hoping to fix? So generally, um, what they're looking for is we call it the Barbie doll look. And the reason we call it that is because Barbie doesn't really have any external genitalia. Um, She certainly doesn't have any labia minora. And so they're looking for, I suppose, that smooth curve where there's no protruding labia minora. Some people call it a prepubescent look as well, because generally that's how little girls' genitalia looks. That's what they're going for in general. And what can happen. is that too much labia minora tissue is um, taken off. And as you can imagine, you can't stick that tissue back on. So once it's taken off, it's gone for good. And that can mean some real difficulties with not just your sex life, but also toileting and, and things like that. So it's, it's a really bad outcome if that happens. You're currently running a project intended to research genital appearance concerns for girls aged 13 to 15. What do you think you'll find? Uh, Well, Anne, I think I'm really excited about this study. I think it's so cool to be able to reach out to people aged 13 to 15. I can tell you um, what we expect to find based on our previous research, which was in 16 to 18-year-old girls. So um, my delightful honours student, Nileshni Fernando, huge shout out to her, and I um, developed a two-minute video that educated young girls about the diversity in genital anatomy, the different parts, the functions of them, and that they change during puberty. So a very brief cartoon style video, no real images. And we were so excited when we saw that it improved their knowledge, it improved how they felt about their own genitals, and it meant that they were less likely to consider cosmetic genital surgery in the future. Like, believe me, that was a very exciting day when we saw that a two minute cartoon video could do all of that. And we're like, okay, that's cool. But then we started reading their responses, like where they were able to type in. And we saw that a huge number of them said, we love your video. We just think it should be shown at younger ages. So we've had really good effects with 16 to 18 year olds, but they're telling us it needs to be done younger. And what they also said, uh, those girls who did have concerns were that they generally started around age 13. And that makes complete sense 
with the way genitals develop. They grow, they mature during puberty. So that's what prompted us to go to a younger age group where we thought we can actually prevent these concerns from starting if we go with a younger age group. And we know that they've already had some genital anatomy education in primary school. So we're catching them just as they're entering uh, high school which is where body image concerns come to light in general. So that's why we started this study in 13 to 15 year olds. And we hope that our little video, two minutes long, has exactly the same impact in 13 to 15 year olds that we saw in 16 to 18 year olds. Yeah, fantastic. I, I really think it would. So if we know that young people do have concerns about the appearance of their genitals or maybe yes. low body image, yes. what can we do about that? Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously I'm going to promote my video on IAN, but, um, but I, I don't, you know, there are, there are lots of ways that we can do this. Obviously, if the young person has had these conversations throughout their life, um, starting from a really young age, like just when little boys, little girls and everyone in between starts asking about, oh, I have different genitals. Like if you've already had those conversations with them, then that's already a great start. Because I actually think 13 is probably a little bit old to be even having this conversation. But I think just having really um, open and honest discussions from the whenever little kids start asking about this is a huge step in the right direction. As soon as little kids start knowing that they look a bit different, then let's start normalising that difference um, in every part of their body. So not because they can see that they have a, maybe a different type of nose or different eye colour or something like that. So why wouldn't their genitals be different too? Obviously, if, if you don't feel um, comfortable as a parent, which is completely understandable, then it's like, okay, or maybe an educator or a health professional can have that conversation with your young person too. I think it's just, yeah, basically just having a dialogue and however you can get that started. And, and there are other resources like the Labia Library, the Mona Museum, the Volva Gallery, there are lots of great, uh, great resources out there too, where you could say, oh, why don't you have a look at this and then we'll have a chat. Not necessarily starting the conversation, but looking at something and then starting the conversation. Mm. I think you said in your TED talk that vulvas are like snowflakes. There's no, no two are the same. That is literally my catch cry, Anne. Everyone knows me that as uh, either labia lady or snowflakes. That's my two, <laughs> two things. Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, just just because we can't see these areas of the body doesn't mean they're not normal, doesn't mean they're not awesome, and doesn't mean they don't, you know, that diversity isn't okay. So I think the more we celebrate diversity in every capacity, the better. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you so much, Gemma, for talking to me. Thank you so much for having me, Anne. And yeah, we would love to have all the 13 to 15 year old girls out there involved in our study. Please just... Uh, um, maybe Anne will leave the details for the study with the podcast. Thank you, Anne. You stay safe and well. Bye. Thanks so much to Dr. Gemma Sharp for that discussion. I'm just going to note a few key things that we mentioned in that interview. Gemma would love any expressions of interest for her current research. Links can be found in the show notes and they're valid at time of publishing, which is July 2020. Many young people have limited or no knowledge of typical female genitalia. Labiaplasty is a fast-growing area of cosmetic surgery, which may have negative outcomes for some people. 
understanding female genitalia and being able to talk about it can increase positive body image and lead to many positive outcomes such as more pleasurable sex life and ability to seek medical help when necessary. Vulvas are all unique and they're likely to change as someone goes through puberty. For more information about FPV, you can go to fpv.org.au. You can register interest in having a 13 to 15-year-old girl participate in Gemma's latest research about young people and genital self-image. Details are available in the show notes. Uh, You can also find Dr. Gemma Sharp on Twitter. I'll link to her Monash University biography in the notes also. This includes links to her research, current and past. It's really interesting to have a look at Gemma's TED Talk. I'll link to that also. Also a great idea to have a look at Women's Health Victoria's Labia Library. You can follow FPV on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. Contact us directly at doingit@fpv.org.au. Subscribe to the podcast. Please uh, like and rate if you like it. Thanks so much for listening. Bye.